Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major. Back to JM in the AM. Are you there? I'm sorry. Oh, there you are. Yes, uh, last week Malcolm was in Jerusalem, this week in New York, and boy, as they say, <clears throat> what a difference a week makes. Uh, to everything, I hope. Well, it's impossible to get to everything, but we'll certainly get to some of the pressing issues that people want to know about, including, yes, Jonathan Pollard will address it, folks. We know that at uh, 4.15 this morning, his freedom began um, to whatever level it's being allowed, and we'll explain all that coming up. And, of course, we'll talk about what happened last Friday night in Paris, which is paramount on so many people's minds, and uh, for us has even deeper meaning, as we just mentioned. Uh, but, Malcolm, of course, I begin with what the Schwartz family is going through in Massachusetts and what the extended... American Jewish community is going through. I say it like that because you know I always say no matter where the attacks are around the world, uh, when they happen to our people, it uh, hits home even more. When they happen in Israel, it hits home even more. And, of course, when it happens to people who are in, who are in very, very similar situations to us, uh, I'm in a situation of sending children to Israel now on a regular basis. You, of course, send grandchildren and I'm sure, no doubt, uh, children as well on a regular basis. When it happens to uh, people who are in very similar situations to us, obviously, it strikes very could ask you is what are your feelings as this murderous episode took place and one of our precious youth from these parts from the United States from our community was gunned down by the enemy yesterday in Israel well there were several attacks yesterday as you know and there are several attacks almost every day uh, yesterday's were particularly deadly with five killed first Several people, a couple of people in Tel Aviv who were stabbed uh, as they were coming out from Dominic Mincha. Uh, and uh, the killer saw them in this room, in this uh, room where they meet to, to Daven, like they do all over Manhattan and many other places, you know, in businesses. And yeah, makeshift minion. Yeah, makeshift minion yeah. that's uh, held regularly in this particular room. And right. as he walked out, he, he stabbed these people. Uh, the second attack, of course, at the, in Gush Etzion, the, the attack on the bus in which uh, Ezra was one of the, the victims. I actually spoke to, to members of the family because of an issue that arose yesterday. Uh, but he was a student at Ashrenu. He was going on a chesed mission together with some of his friends. If you read the stories about him, he was a remarkable uh, young man yep. uh, who inspired others to go to Israel and who that was a source of assurance, a reassurance to them. And he, uh, they were going to visit also the memorial to the three boys who were killed last year. Um, and what's very disappointing, frankly, is again the reaction of the world. Jews were killed in the bombings in Paris, in the attacks in Paris. But they were not killed as Jews, they were killed as Parisians. It was not targeting Jewish sites. Mm -hmm. In this case, there's no doubt what, the, te what the, the goal was, even though one of the people killed was, in fact, a Palestinian who was just standing at the bus station or, and, and happened to be a bystander. Yeah, wrong place, wrong time. Exactly. But the United Nations statement cited the deaths of um, three Israelis, one Palestinian, and an American. <laughs> no killer, no identification of who did it, no mention. And even more disturbing is that the White House and State Department did not issue statements yesterday, even though an American was killed. And the, you see the, the, the statements that were issued in Paris properly, correctly, but here 
there was no statement issued, and we waited and waited until the end of the day and called the White House to ask what was going on. Uh, and it's, it, it, it is not only a, a double standard, this is a hypocritical standard for the world that rushes to impose sanctions against Israel, boycotts Israel, wants to boycott sections of Israel, uh, Yehuda and Shomron and the West Bank, and the, people are, are so ready to jump and criticize Israel and to look and inspect every move by every soldier, every pilot, every sailor, and, and yet they have this hypocritical double standard. They want to label products, fruits and vegetables, but they won't label the killers of Jews. I think it's something that, is, that compounds the tragedy and it's something that all of us have to take very seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's outrageous. Uh, I, I don't even know, and maybe you do, I'm not sure if you do. I, I don't even know if members of the United States House of Representatives from Massachusetts and members of the United States Senate from Massachusetts came out public. You know, we always demand when something happens, if someone's injured, for instance, from New York and New Jersey, we demand that our senators get out there and make the world aware of it. I don't even know if that happened up there. I, I do not, actually, it's a good question. I don't know. I haven't seen any statements that have emanated from them, so... Good, I, I can check, but uh, yeah, you know, I this really has to send a different message, and that has to start at the very top of the federal government. Um, should have in their absence and their failure to do so. And I don't want to see it become a political issue between you know, in the silly season of presidential elections, this is much too serious to become a political football. This has to be a clear declaration, and the failure to do so, and the failure to be willing to name names and to ascribe responsibility compounds the problem in it and, and it's never the way to handle an issue like this if you can't name them if you can't shame them if you can't hold them to account then and and always find excuses if you see all of the statements that have been made from europe and elsewhere about the, that these are discontented people uh, disempowered that they come from terrible circumstances most of these people are, are middle class the guys who are being recruited as as uh, as foreign fighters in Syria, many of them are not coming from from lower classes or terrible or poverty situations. Doesn't mean they're all in good situations, but the, you know that he must have faced discrimination. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done this. <laughs> hey, I have no idea who he was. I don't know no idea the history, but right away the excuse is there. Outrageous. Um, this may be a, a somewhat a little bit out of line, but um, I, I feel it has to be said. The And sometimes we are criticized, frankly, both me and you, because uh, we, we sometimes encourage people to you know, maintain their schedule of trips to Israel, etc., when sometimes people think that uh, it may not be a time to, you know, to, to address the topic or to encourage that. Um, would, it be, would it be safe to, um, to ask people the following? Um, th- there are there are probably many many thoughts going through the collective American Jewish mind right now about the um, about the relationship between our children and grandchildren and the state of Israel and what the present and future holds. Would it be a good idea for everybody to take a deep breath and be very careful about what they say or don't say in general about this situation and and you know and instead of reacting through emotion uh, to you know down the road. Uh, decide things in a more calm and collected manner. Would that be appropriate or out of line to say? I think it's the minimal that we can say. I do think it's absolutely appropriate, and your formulation is right. 
I never tell people when they say to me, but are you sure it's safe? I, I tell them I can't. Legally, I can't say it, and, and practically I wouldn't say it. I said, but look, I just went. I went and I spent five days. I walked around Yerushalayim. I don't go with security. My grandson is learning in Israel. He doesn't go with any security. Uh, I, I, you know, we set the example by what we do. And yeah. think about the, the impact now in Israel, and people don't realize because the hotels are generally still full. Uh, much of this is you know, tourism that was booked before, and I see Christian groups that, that uh, were coming. Um, a very big group from Florida that, that was, uh, they lost, I think, out of 90 people, they lost 10 or 15. Um, but the stores are empty. People in, in Mamila tell us that 50% drop in, in sales. The stores in Tel Aviv are, are saying that they are empty. The, um, the many areas are hurting very badly. So if you don't go, maybe there are ways that you can do your Hanukkah shopping. Maybe, maybe you could order things from Israel. Maybe there are ways to you know, send money to people in Israel to buy stuff for you to bring. We've got to show them that they're not alone because this is not a war against Israel. It's a war against the Jewish people. It's the significance of what's happening at Har Bayis. And if people don't get it after all that we saw in the statements that followed in the, in the last uh, days after, you, you know, and how long I've been speaking about this topic, hmm. um, you see it, it manifest so clearly that this is not a war against Jews in particular place. It's not a territorial war. It's a war against Judaism. It's a war against the Jewish people. It's a war against the Jewish state. And we can't aid and abet that by canceling trips, by, by not going to Israel, postponing it. It's actually the time when they need to see us most. And people have to weigh it, think about all the, the, the situations. But, you know, I see them make decisions to go to other places in Europe, for instance, but certainly aren't much aren't safer, and there's no assurance given the attacks you saw in Marseille, the attack against the yep. uh, Jewish-looking individual, and and the nature of it, because they showed pictures of Mohammed Mara, the guy who carried out the attack in Toulouse. So this wasn't haphazard. It wasn't just an act of guys driving around the street and all of a sudden decided because they had ISIS uh, T-shirts. They had they asked him, "Are you a Jew?" and then proceeded to, to beat him up and, and stab him. And only because a car came was his life spared at all. So there, there are no, it's not a question just of safety. You have to think about the implications of our actions and what regrets you'll have afterwards for our failure to stand up at a critical time. Yeah, Rabbi Riskin has mentioned many times in this show where we can't treat Israel like Disneyland, you know, vacation land. We have to treat it like a motherland. Uh, that that it is, and uh, believe me, the motherland needs us more than ever. Um, all right, so with this episode and uh, this terrible tragedy and the murder and uh, the murders, I should say, in uh, southern Tel Aviv, and obviously what we were discussing in the Gush, uh, you know, the, everyone's uh, natural reaction: what can Israel do at this point? I mean, we're talking about what seems to be. I'm, I'm not using the word random that there's no incitement and there's no directive. I'm not denying that there might be. I'm saying random in that people just have no clue that you know, the person standing next to them, as we say often, or, or walking by them during a mincha service might be out to stab and kill everybody around them. Uh, is there anything that can be done to prevent these attacks? Well, the, the uh, answer is that they, they, they are exacting the price. They have to do more house demolitions and punish the parents of, of those who are, quote, underage, that they have to hold people to account within the bounds of the law 
and I think that uh, the Prime Minister has you know, given very strict orders, and I discussed it with the Police Commissioner and Minister and others um, in Israel. It is very hard. This is a whack-a-mole. You know, they pop up in yeah. unpredictable places. It's not something you can track. You can't have intelligence that, that you know, leads you to listening to chatter or some other exchanges on the Internet, things like that, that would direct you to, to a particular individual or individuals and a cell. They, they bust up the cells. They go in and they make arrests, many arrests in, at night in, in different places in, in Palestinian areas where uh, camps and, and other places where they know of this activity. When somebody is incited by the Internet, when he's contacted by a relative, when he just makes a decision one morning after breakfast to go out and kill somebody, mm-hmm. it's very hard. And I know it's easy for everybody to be an armchair general and say, this is yep. what you have to do. You know, there's a limit to how many walls and fences you can put up. There's a, a limit to how much you can impinge on people's lives. But frankly, in this circumstance, you've got to do everything and hold everybody to account. Look, Abbas himself is not being held to account by the international community. You know, there are some criticisms, and members of Congress have issued statement after statement and resolution after resolution, which is really wonderful. But it doesn't matter. And this week he admitted that he rejected the Omer plan, for instance, which all along, you know, they kept saying it was Israel that walked away. And he said, no, I walked away, he proudly proclaims it, said that, that, uh, that he was responsible for rejecting it. Did anybody, all those who wrote, did, did they write columns saying we were wrong, we acknowledge now that it wasn't Israel, that it was the Palestinians, like they did every other time, walk away from negotiations? 62% of Palestinians opposed new negotiations in a poll that came out in the last uh, day or so. Mm-hmm. And a half of them would favor a new intifada now. Which we have already, but whatever. Well, we have in essence. It's not yeah. It's not a broad scale. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, we've discussed but the difference. I, yeah. I know the impact is is one where people feel that they are in, in this kind of thing. You know, they caught a, a truck carrying rocket fuel to Gaza, and they've, they've caught all sorts of things which shows that the, there's an escalation and that they're getting assistance from outside and whether it's in Iran, it's, uh, it's still funding Hamas, and you have other groups that are, are providing funds and uh, trying to build themselves up in every country in, in the region, and actually drives the Arab states closer to Israel in, in, uh, in, in view of all of the, the regional crisis, I should say. Right. But the bottom line is the world is just full of hypocrisy, and, and uh, you know, the Swedish prime minister, the foreign minister of Sweden, you know, said that Paris occurred because of the Palestinian, the frustrations of the Palestinians. Right. Israeli thing. Right. Now the Swedish prime minister yesterday said, uh, we were naive about ISIS. <laughs> no, they should have looked now and say, were the attacks in Israel because of Paris? <laughs> so true. And you know what's going on in his country, by the way? Of course. Life is intolerable for Jews. Jews are leaving there. And oh, I, I, I would say life is becoming intolerable for non-Muslims there, not just Jews. For, for people, for yes, but young young Europeans are leaving Europe. Right. Even even Muslims who are getting up, who who, who can't take and don't want to live under these circumstances and live in those areas uh, that are becoming increasingly dominated by Islamists and, and extremists and imposing Sharia law on sectors of France where they have their own internal legal systems. 
there are parts of Germany where the Minister of Education told me himself that they don't teach in German, they teach in Arabic, and that they have little control over the curriculum. And the, you know, and, and what does Europe do? It labels products, which is an, an encouragement to, to, to boycott Israel. We know that it's a first step, that it's a, an introduction where you, you keep raising the standard and, and the ba- remove barriers to uh, ultimate discrimination against Israeli products. But it's, uh, you know, there are all these other separatist movements, 200 of them around the world, and situations like where, where there are territorial disputes, and yet you don't have a single one of them being subjected to, to well, this kind of, uh, of, of legislations and, and uh, uh, resolutions to, to imp- implement a, essentially a boycott. And the, the distinction we hard to make, because they, you know, if it's not labeled in the West Bank, then they'll say, well, we can't do anything uh, uh, from Israel. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's not something to be dismissed. It, the economic impact is minimal, it's true. And, and the, generally the BDS movement's uh, impact. But it's not just the economics of the issue. You have to look at it much more broadly about what is the psychological impact, the, the sense of isolation. These are the goals. They don't care about the economic impact. They don't care about the economic impact on the tens of thousands of Palestinians who will lose their jobs because right. of this. And the symbolism. They care about the symbolism. And boy, it's very symbolic, all right. It's uh, way behind schedule. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM Dial, broadcasting live from the Sony and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. I want to thank our JMNAM team who will be sitting in next week while we go to uh, make the final preparations for our Jewish Unity Initiative for the Great Synagogue of uh, Paris, where we will uh, be broadcasting and presenting that amazing uh, Hanukkah program on the 9th of December. Um, you heard what happened in Mali this morning. I'm sure most people are aware of the news. Anybody who gets alerts is certainly aware of the hostage situation there. And, of course, we know what happened last Friday night in Paris, which we'll talk about more in detail in a moment. And and I know we've pointed this out before, but the the degree to which the world is watching as we just never know where the next attack is going to be. We never know where ISIS is going to rear its ugly head. You know, when they're, when they're threatening Times Square, I know that New York City officials and FBI officials are trying to calm everybody down. I get that. And they tell us the difference between a video, you know, created and reality of, of what their intelligence tells them. But nonetheless, you know, there, there's nowhere on this planet at this point where it seems they just can't go and, and create bedlam and murder. And, and you don't even know how many attacks there are all over the world which don't get reported, which, you know, you've seen the attacks on, on Israelis hardly gets reported unless it's something, you know, this bloody and, and American involved. I'm not sure otherwise it would even be noticed. It would be reported at all. Right. And, and there are attacks in Arab countries against Muslims, against Christians all the time, against Yazidis, against Baha'i, against Muslims. Nobody cares. They don't even report these things. So what we know about is when there is something that is uh, like in Mali and, and the, what the, the acts of Boko Haram and, uh, and the uh, attacks that, that go on everywhere. And the world becomes, in your view, becomes you, 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 they raise the level of what is acceptable. That yep. beheadings become norm. Right. You're not even, you don't get a sense of revulsion against it that uh, one would believe. And 
you know, in Yemen, there was a big explosion. I think 10 people were hurt, a couple very, very seriously. Nobody's going to report it because nobody cares. And, uh, you know, at least I think three people were killed in Mali. And, and, and yeah. How, how, many, how many terrorists were part of the operation that, that hit six different sites last Friday night in France? I, I, I'm not asking you for an exact number, but how many people at this point, around how many people were involved to carry out that entire operation? First of all, you have support groups, and you have the support for the support groups. You have those who um, inspired, those who... who, who uh, yeah, you're basically getting to my point, where, we're, where it, it, it's endless, right? It's not just the 20, 30, whatever number of people they think they're rounding up and maybe even you know killing in these raids. It, you're, you're talking about a, a really large number of people that have to be involved in some way, shape, or form. Exactly. There has to be a large number of people, not just those who are apprehended. And you know that in Belgium they've already had right. several raids. In France they've had several, several raids. There are ties to people in Germany. There are, Netherlands. There are, are, and, and then you've got to look at who are their handlers and who are their handlers, you know, who's funding it, who's providing weapons. How did they get all these coalition accounts? Even though I think they're generally available, you can buy everything anywhere today. Um, but I think, I think people don't realize that, that it's not, they, they talk about lone operatives. There are no lone wolves here. When it came to 9-11, we always talk about the 19, right? The 19 that were responsible for it. But you'd have to, I mean, you'd have to say again, that circle of, uh, of um, guilt was much larger than that, correct? I don't, know why in, I don't know why in this case it seems more obvious than it did in the 9-11 situation. Well, we've learned to understand the operations and people are more aware of, of who the groups are and, and the kind of uh, what, what is entailed in carrying out and executing uh, some of these attacks. You can have a lone operative, but you have to look at the Internet, you look at the source of, of incitement, whatever it could be, an imam, but it doesn't have to have a big network to go out and stab somebody. Yeah. Carry out synchronized attacks and have the backpacks and the, the belts and everything. That's a big operation. French reaction, of course, uh, go hit ISIS hard, and they've had help from the U.S. and others in this. How hard has it been? Has it made an impact? Are they destroying the economic uh, a tunnel that is so important to ISIS to keep them going? I mean, did, did they make any progress in the one week that, since they made the commitment to go and get ISIS? Uh, I wish I could say yes. There is, there is, the French have bombed ISIS. They started, if you remember, several weeks ago, I said on the show that France was in line to, for a big attack and they were starting to bomb Raqqa in, uh, to, to try and prevent it. So it wasn't that this wasn't known. It was, um, it, it, they were anticipating this. But this really accelerated it. And, and there was no way to prevent Again, even when you have advanced knowledge, because they infiltrate into the society, they, they, had no, they, they didn't know that this ringleader, and if you notice, they said the information came from a non-European intelligence source. So you can think about what the alternatives there could be, <laughs> yeah. that they found out that, where, that he was, uh, in fact, in Europe. So being aware of it, and I, and I think I told you a long time ago that I had this discussion with the head of French security and others, and he told me that he needs 10 men or people to assign to cover each of the foreign fighters. There are at least 1,500, maybe more from France. 
He said, I don't have 15,000 people to assign to this. And the, the guys who are watching the, the killers at Charlie Hebdo were pulled from their surveillance of, of the guys who carried out the attack just a couple of days before because he needed to move them to some other place. Very disconcerting. The media reports it as great progress against ISIS, but you tell us the reality. If they will show me what the progress is against ISIS, you can bomb them. They, they saturate bombing of, of uh, ISIS. You have the Russians, Americans, everybody's bombing them. The French carry out many attacks and are moving ships into the, uh, 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 into the region, into the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean. Um, the Russians have a lot of ships there. They're shooting missiles. They're doing other things. They are most times going after the rebels in the Russians' case, but we certainly have been going after ISIS. Yeah. But you can't show on the ground great success that we've really that they really beat back the advances. And in many cases, the ISIS took territory from the Syrian army and from backed by the Russians and others. So it doesn't, I don't see yet where the great progress has been. Yeah. I wonder why the owner of the uh, of the um, theater where the attack took place in France is running to uh, proclaim that uh, that there's that that he w- that the venue was not targeted because he's Jewish. I don't know how he would or would not know why that venue was targeted, and why and 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 what would be I don't know what would be wrong with assigning to the enemy the desire to hit a target that's owned by a Jew. I just. I don't know. Well, we, we don't know. It could be that they, they just had no evidence. I mean, there is no evidence, from what I understand, about why the particular sites were, were selected. I don't know what intelligence they've gotten from interviewing uh, the people that, that carried out. And you know that ISIS is standing in the Muslim world, according to a study, except for Pakistan. In the Muslim world, they, need, they were rejected by in the 90% in most countries. And they're not gaining support by, by virtue of what they're doing. You've got to look also, what is their support? How are they able to pay for all of this? They make $40 million a month from oil. In addition, they have all sorts of criminal activities, all sorts of criminal activities. They sell antiquities that they steal. They, they, buy, they sell the, foreign, the passports of foreign fighters, the tens of thousands of fighters, which are, of course, on a market for people trying to get out and to use them. They, they uh, deal in drugs, they deal in all sorts of things, ransom from kidnapping, which nets them a lot of money. So they have, uh, and then they, of course, take over equipment from Iraqi troops and other troops uh, over the years, you know, to, to use. And uh, we don't know what outside sources of funding also aid and abet them. Yeah. But that's another way to, to hurt them. It's cut off the funding, bomb all of their refineries. Don't let them export a drop of oil. No shortage in the market for oil today. Um, what do you think of the uh, of day w- a day that I never thought we'd actually see? Uh, day one of the uh, release, the freedom of Jonathan Pollard. Um, in a way, I uh, I think that, it w- that because it ended up again, no one is hoping that he not be awarded the total freedom at this point. Uh, I wish he would have, and he, there are some restrictions now in terms of where he can go, etc. But I think uh, in the big picture, the global picture, just ma- having it being done in such an understated way and really out of the headlines, outside of news articles, um, I think may have been the best approach, may have been the best thing in general for the for Israel, for the United States, for the Jewish community. What do you think? 
I think the uh, Israel has welcomed the, the release. Uh, we certainly do. We, I, I can only imagine Pollard's relief, but we have to remember he paid with 30 years of his life for his, his crime, a crime that he has expressed regret for. It's so far disproportionate to what anybody else has, but I think at this point we should look to the future that he'd be able to live his life. He, he has a job. He will... Uh, you know, begin his life. He wants to do it quietly. I think it's part of the understanding that nobody wants to, you know, have parades or anything else at this point. Uh, we should be thankful that he's out. It, it wasn't an automatic until the last minute. No one was sure what actually might might happen. And uh, you know, he, I'm sure ultimately books will be written, and we'll come to a much better understanding of what really occurred. You know, it was interesting. I read an article in the Jerusalem Post that was giving a, uh, a synopsis of what Israeli intelligence was like, especially in an era from, let's say, the 1950s to 1980s when they were, they were seriously spying. Well, how do I put this? Where it seems they were seriously spying on the United States. And it is such a different atmosphere now. 30 years later after Pollard, it is such a different atmosphere where it seems they would not in any way try to quote-unquote spy on the U.S. to get intelligence information. And what you've always told us about recent years, the memo of understanding, the intelligence cooperation, the military cooperation, etc., some of us don't realize, maybe I don't realize sometimes, that we're really in a completely different era, and I mean it in a more positive way, in terms of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, the level of cooperation in, in many areas especially in intel, et cetera, is very good. It depends often on who's in charge and, and uh, in the different agencies, and, of course, the message that comes from on top. But Israel also provides tremendous resources. Israel does not spy on the United States. It is a policy that was adopted after uh, the Pollard uh, debacle, for which uh, there was a heavy price paid, right. a heavy price in Israel's reputation, a heavy price for some people in government. Um, you know, the, they called it the Pollard effect for a while. I think it's it's dissipated by and large, but there still are cases where we, we hear of uh, discrimination against people who had uh, involvements in Israel, et cetera. And on the other hand, you see others who rise to high positions in these agencies, even though they've had they went to Israel to study or they went they they've had the family visits, et cetera. So it isn't a, such a clear picture that one could point to. Generally, the level of military and intelligence cooperation right now is very good, um, and it, but it always varies. There's always things that are being held back, there's information that's not necessarily shared. But the personal level, and I saw it, I, I addressed this week the 500 uh, pilots and the officers, the top officers of the Air Force, in a special seminar that they do periodically, I think every few years or every year, um, and you see the incredible quality and, and people who are there that we take for granted, who are out there every day putting their lives on the line. But they spoke, and, and, and I saw personally the interaction with their American counterparts who have to be visiting, uh, how close the personal relationship is and the interaction hmm. that we don't see publicly uh, taking place every day. Uh, I thought of you last night as the debate was raging in the Siegel home about the uh, Syrian refugee issue and whether, in fact, there should be a quota, not a quota, anybody should be allowed into this country, not be allowed into this country. And you know what the president is pushing for, the number 10,000 of Syrian refugees. We saw what Congress 
did yesterday. Uh, can you weigh in on this issue of how you view the United States and its role now with the refugees? I think every Jew has great sympathy for refugees. We know a world that closed its doors in the past on, on ours. But first of all, these are not many of these are not refugees in the same sense. If you look at the disproportionality, it's not families leaving, it's not women and, and orphans that I think are the problems that as, as it's being portrayed. But you see all of these young men, uh, and I heard a debate the other day where they were saying, why are they not fighting? Why aren't they there not rebuilding Syria or fighting against the Assad regime? That, that, that caused the problem, and that the only way you'll solve it is solving the situation at home that's driving people out. But I don't know to what degree, even if things were calming down, would people not want to leave and certainly go to Europe, go to elsewhere, go to America uh, for a better life and better circumstance, which we, we understand. But you, you, you create a circumstance by such a massive flow of people that, A, you can't properly uh, weed out the, the potential dangers and, and you know that at least one of the people in the Paris attack came through through this way. Um, two, that that the demographic imbalances in Europe or balances in Europe are are going to be impacted, especially with Germany, where I just saw the study that they will have 20 million Muslims by 2020. Um, the the other projections that that we see, and you can't integrate the people fast enough. You can't put a give them decent jobs and, and uh, work them into the societies of the countries if it's not done in an orderly and, and uh, uh, thoughtful way you know what today is the m- largest Muslim city in Europe what um, is what is the largest Moscow. Moscow right nobody believes it but it's Moscow they have between 1.5 and 2 million Muslims now many of them came from Central Asia um, and, and there are estimates that there are a couple thousand Russians and former Soviet Union territory people in ISIS today. They don't, there's a, such a large Muslim population in, in the Russian in territories under Russia's control. Certainly, you know, Chechnya, everybody knows, in the Northern Caucasus, which are troublesome and where you see the process of radicalization uh, going on. So it's not just the parts of Europe that we chest, we generally tend to, to look at it's it's everywhere in Europe and the you know the to to grant people who are really seeking asylum from persecution etc would make sense but you've seen all the statements and again it had to take somebody with greater expertise about the fact that that Christians are discriminated against when it comes to getting out or not who are certainly in grave danger, or Baha'is in, in Iran, or others, um, as opposed to this massive flow across borders of tens of thousands of people a day that, you know, just end up in these populations, and, and who's going to integrate them? Are they going to create then camps within every country and perpetuate the, both the poverty and, and the, the breeding ground for more attacks? Yeah. Big issues, that's for sure. You know, history and uh, Jewish history specifically, as we know, really has its ups and downs. And there have been some very, very challenging times. Um, many, uh, many, quite recently, historically, 20th century, some really, really challenging times and dark times. And, 
You turn around, and almost in an instant, so to speak, things are completely different. Enemies are eradicated. Um, countries you know, become diplomatic uh, friends and move on. So many different crises, and I try to tell this to people in the next generation who sometimes panic about the situation. Uh, is there anything <laughs> that you could tell us this morning that would put a positive ending to all this, that, uh, where you see some light at the end of the tunnel and that the free world will, in fact, respond the way it has in the past to eliminate the darkness and to really light up the world? First of all, there's, there's a lot of good news. When you look at the situation in Israel, some of the new discoveries that they've come out with in, in recent weeks and the medical devices and treatments for all sorts of diseases, etc. So there's a lot of good news that Israel is alive and well, and the fact is that Jews who are persecuted have a place to go. Here you have 21 Arab countries, and they have to escape to Europe. Why aren't they going to Saudi Arabia, to, which is underpopulated, or UAE, or all these other places, countries? They don't take him in. Why isn't Iran, which is doing so much in, to, to instigate the situation, or Russia, have not taken large numbers? But thank God Jews go to a, a, a country that is certainly a 21st century country, have a, a democracy and a place they can live and they'll be accepted and no matter what the burden is their conditions <clears throat> there is an open door for them so we are really in the most unique position and I, I will tell you that Arab, there I've heard it from Arab leaders saying hey you guys are not in the same circumstance we don't have an alternative you do and you see how much more the the Arab states continue despite everything to to look at uh, at Israel in a in a different way, so I think that there is it is truly a complex time. It's a difficult time. I think Israel moving against the Islamic movement was a, a good move this week. It's something long overdue. They should have outlawed him a long time ago. The um, I think the the need to stand up for, for, firmly and forcefully and that the West will ultimately have to make some tough decisions. They do not seem ready for it. They don't seem willing to make the tough decisions, and each time excusing it or not putting the onus where it belongs, naming names and saying that there is an Islamist problem, because Muslims are the, are the biggest victims of them, the first victims of them. And that's the precedent, by the way, that we keep hanging our hat on, and that is that uh, the West has made important decisions in the past. Now we need them to make it again. That will be willing to, you know, not just to throw out ideas, and the debate shouldn't be over, you know, letting in orphans because I don't know how many orphans there are. Three-year-old orphans are waiting to come into the country. It means the the the, the discussion of a very serious issue. Yeah. How do you protect the country? How do you protect when you know that there are forces that want to infiltrate that one and who, whose goal is the destruction of America, destruction of of democracy, the destruction certainly of Israel, but they're fundamental, they're, they're a great Satan, Satan is the United States. Yeah. The European countries do, do they think about what are the ramifications? They say they need population that they need because the European population is so much older and that this will invigorate the economy. I mean, that doesn't seem to make any sense. That's for sure. The view of the security challenges and the, the, these populations that, that don't want to integrate. And what my point earlier about all these young men is that they're going to bring members of their families. They can bring, I think, four or five members of their families. 
So when you see the projections by those who have studied this issue, and I'm certainly not an expert on the demographics uh, issue, they could tell you how many, how many uh, they can project how many people will in fact be involved. Because once they're there, then they're going to bring families or relatives, and you see this the pictures of these long, long lines of people. There are very few women and very few children. It's all seemingly able-bodied men. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the future of the Jewish peoples in the state of Israel. Yet again, we learn this lesson. Um, n- uh, next week, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, so we'll reconvene uh, two weeks from today. And I uh, thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Uh, happy Turkey. Have a good Shabbos, and, uh, everyone. And they should be optimistic. We will overcome. We've had worse problems in the past. Today, thank God, and seeing those Air Force guys and looking at the F-15s and all the great innovations, we are in good hands. Yep. Especially remember the Shabbos and Dominic. 100%. And uh, in good hands of the one above as well. Um, most importantly.